Welcome to KubeCuddle, a podcast about Kubernetes and the people who build and use it. I'm your host, Rich Burroughs. Today, I'm speaking with Paige Cruz. Paige is a senior developer advocate at Chronosphere. Welcome. Thanks for having me on today. I'm uh, excited to have you uh, here. We have known each other for a while now. We met uh, several years ago uh, through DevOps Days Portland. I was one of the organizers, and I think you spoke at least a couple of times at the conference. Yeah, I was very ambitious in the, my early days of being an engineer. In fact, the first conference talk I gave was within, I want to say, four months of me learning um, how to do development in a corporate setting. And um, there's no better place than DevOps Days Portland. <laughs> I have to give our, our community regional conference a plug. Yeah, I actually stepped down as one of the organizers because I just uh, had too much else going on. And they didn't do one this last year. So I'm not sure where things are at with the conference, but I, I hope I it shows up again. It's a great event and um, a really awesome team to work with. I, I enjoy doing that quite a bit. Um, so you... Uh, Previously, you were a site reliability engineer, and now mm -hmm. you have moved into the dark side of DevRel. Yes, I am really enjoying things over in marketing land. Um, and, and I think, especially when we're serving a developer audience, um, I, I think a lot of developers are allergic to marketing, um, or they there's a bit of skepticism that is, is rightful to have. Um, you know, not every vendor is you know, selling the best product or using the most above board tactics. And so I really see my role as combating that um, is being the friendly face, being um, the unobtrusive. I'm here to share information and I'm not trying to bring you, you know, I, I don't want there to be any mystery about if I'm trying to sell you something or share information. And so coming on this podcast, hey, this is just coming from my own experience as an SRE, contending with Kubernetes, having to teach developers. Um, honestly, nothing to do with my, my company here other than they're paying for my time. So um, yeah. that, that has been interesting. I'm sure you've had to sort through those feelings of <laughs> being on the dark side, as you say. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I think that especially when, um, you know, like I'm working at a place now where I talk mainly about open source products, but that's not always been the case, right? And I think that especially when you're at a place where all they have is a commercial product, it gets a little, even a little harder to navigate that stuff. But, um, but I think that a lot of people um, are receptive if they feel that you're coming from a good place like that. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I'm here. I'm here to, if you don't know me, <laughs> um, I'm here to, to bring you the good information um, that I have hard won through my years of experience, and um, I'll let you know when it's an ad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I uh, wanted to get into your background a little bit. Um, how is it that you got started off in computing? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so uh, I'll say I'm a millennial, like full stop. So technology was introduced to my life um, not in like a corporate setting or not for spreadsheets and efficiency, but I was introduced to like AOL Instant Messenger and MySpace and I was playing PC games. And so computers to me have always been sort of a portal into creativity and kind of extending the physical world around me. Um, it's a place for connection. Um, I can the earliest form of coding I think that entered my life was an uncle got me a 
uh, HTML website book for kids. And I was so proud. I made my little table, <laughs> my headings. And I was like, mom, go look at my website. It's so sick. And I'm like, file, colon, slash, slash. And, you know, obviously it was not on the web. Um, and, and then I kind of put, I put it down. You know, had someone in my life maybe been involved in computing, I, who knows, I could have been coding since I was seven. But um, I kind of filed that knowledge away and ended up taking, uh, I first enrolled in mechanical engineering in college. And the mechanical section actually included a Python class. Um, oh. They wanted us to have a really broad foundation. And so I took my CS, you know, entry level compute, you know, CS course and was like, OK, I know Python. I, I'm comfortable on the terminal. I can LS. Um, OK, so so in my mind, there's HTML web page stuff floating around. And now this kind of concept of the computer, the terminal, the the back end of the machine, the back end of the GUI. Um, but I didn't really know how to combine those things. And luckily, unluckily, um, I got halfway through my major in mechanical engineering and kind of hit a roadblock and ended up pivoting to, if you can believe this, a major called engineering management. So I literally oh, wow. have a degree in engineering management. Um. Which is funny because I don't see that on the job applications. That's not a degree they're asking for. I honestly, I didn't know it was a degree that existed. This is literally, I think, the first time I've ever heard of that. It's a little, I will say it's a little silly as an undergrad degree. I don't know that I trust anyone who, who maybe went straight from high school to college um, to manage a team of engineers. But the purpose of that program was to take the technical minds within engineering and expose them to what it fully takes to run and operate and scale a business, which is mm, marketing, sure. it's sales, operation, like literal supply chains, not di chains, not digital ones. And so I walked away saying, oh my God, thank God we have people in finance who understand accounting and term sheets. And thank God we have folks in marketing who are out there spreading the word and in the field. And um, I... It stripped away a lot of the engineering elitism that I think um, kind of persists in our society today. I, I was like, heck no, I'm not an accountant. Please don't send me like term sheets or anything. Um, I just want to look at, at the code in the computer. So I'd say that is probably what primed me not only for SRE to take an interdisciplinary approach to to not just looking at your technical systems, but to say, how is it serving the business? What is the business trying to do? How can I help marketers and sales and customer support? You know, looking at it all as one hashtag one team. <laughs> um, that's, that's super interesting because there definitely is a lot of elitism in the industry. I feel like it's maybe getting better, you know, but maybe that's also mm -hmm. because I'm in a bubble of people who aren't that way. But um, yeah. but it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, some of this stuff for me, like I, I was definitely that way, especially back in the like the nineties, the you know the two thousands. Mm -hmm. I, I thought we were the cool kids, you know, the ones who were like doing the Udic stuff, and that like we were smarter yeah. than everybody. And and um, I, as time went on, I started working at startups, and um, mm -hmm. I worked at one startup a few years ago where. I was laid off and I knew that it was directly as a result of us not making enough sales. 
And so, uh-huh. so suddenly like some of these things okay. start to click in your brain and it's like, okay, yeah. I really, I really need these salespeople, right? I really depend on them to even have a job. Yeah, they are the early, I would say they are the uh, early indicators of business health. Um, if you do not have a friend in sales, uh, now's your chance to go make one. Um, <laughs> highly recommend. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so I, I graduate with this degree, right? You know, nobody is trying to, I did not have people knocking at my door asking me to manage engineers. Um, and I was in a little bit of a career crossroads. Where do I go to start um, to start my working life. And I was very lucky through Startup Weekend, which is essentially like a hackathon over a weekend with business and software people. You kind of pitch a startup and then by the end of the weekend, you pitch um, <laughs> you pitch your findings and what you've built and um, people vote. It's really fun. But through there, I met somebody who worked at New Relic and he was a product manager. And he was he was friends with our HR person. And he said, you know, I don't know if you're interested at all, but we are looking for a people ops person in the Portland office. It's all engineers. You know, you should think about that. And I was like, oh, my God, I just spent four years with engineers. I know how persnickety they can be pedantic. You know, I know sometimes being technically correct is is the most important thing. Um, I get these these folks. These are my folks. Um <laughs> Oh, I, I would totally be a good fit. And that really started my tech career. Even though I wasn't writing software, I think if you are working at a tech company, you've got a higher than average sense when it comes to the tech world and using applications and just, you know, the you understand the massive role that technology plays in the business world, in the nonprofit world, all around us. Um, we have those insights. So I'm there. I'm I'm doing people ops. I'm loving it. I'm running our intern program. And I happen to one day find out that the it's software engineering intern, their hourly rate was a lot higher than mine. And I'm sitting there like, whoa, I know Python. I know HTML, right? No, I'm not an expert, but like the concept of a for loop, I'm aware of these things. I know how to hack a Google Sheet. So like, what am I doing wrong here? And I looked around and all around me were um, women who are software engineers who are happy and fulfilled and, you know, reaching new heights. And I just, I saw an environment that I I felt I could grow in. So I took plunge of faith, ended up going to a boot camp, And then, thank God, on the other half of that, um, at the end of that, New Relic hired me back onto an internal tools team where I got my really my start with this whole DevOps, SRE, infrastructure, you know, <laughs> Terraform. Um, I kind of got, when you're demoing, when your product is a monitoring product and you need to demo it, you've got to build actually crappy apps. You've got to build apps that are flawed yes, to yeah, show yeah, yeah. off. <laughs> I literally so just did a app- webinar the other day with somebody who has a an observability-related product and they had broken apps they could deploy so that we could troubleshoot them. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and really it, it's so, I credit so much of my growth to that team and the mentors that I had. I asked a very patient man named Gabe, what is a server? What is a server? I asked him that probably 10 times in a row. Cause I'm like, I don't get it. It's a computer. It's a laptop. It's a laptop that's in a different room. Why, why can't I run it locally? And had I had someone who was 
don't know, a little grumpy, a little crunchy um, of an engineer uh, who would have brushed me off and not taken that curiosity, um, I probably wouldn't be sitting here today. So uh, I hope people realize, like, even within a short six years that I've been in this field, I have grown from what is a server to, oh, I've got the keys to all the clusters across the regions and I know how they work on some level. Um, so it's possible. And we've, we've really got to open the door for the next generation of SREs and operators. And um, yes, this world is complicated. I was, bo- I was a dev born in a Docker container, shipped to EC2 that was managed by infrastructure as code. You know, like I was kind of thrown into this complexity and really it's the power of events and observability, which we're going to get into that helped me as a newbie grapple and understand the multiple environments at the multiple um, companies I've worked at. Without that visibility and my strong foundation in those concepts, oh my gosh, uh, you don't want to see me grepping through logs. My grep skills are not great because <laughs> that's, I, I don't find myself, you know, at the terminal to debug. I'm mostly using the tools, <laughs> the tools that I've grown up with. Yeah. Um, for folks who are outside of Portland, um, you wouldn't necessarily know the the story uh, in terms of New Relic and like their presence in the community here. But they're like one of the big tech employers here, one of the big startups. Um, I guess they're no longer a startup. They exited a while ago, but. Um, but I still think of them that way, right? Because I know I remember mm-hmm. when uh, when they uh, landed in, they were actually in the same building that I worked in for a while, and you'd see all these folks. Suddenly, there were all these people around with new relic hoodies on, and I was like, "What is that?" Um, and uh, one of the things that I was always uh, always kind of jealous of is the fact that the people that I knew who worked there um, they got to use new relic for free. Um, which was kind of cool. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The places that that I worked couldn't afford it. Right. And it was like, (laughs) oh my God. Yeah. That is, that is the one thing when I talk to my ex relics, I'm like, okay, what was it like at your first company after new relic when you didn't have this, you know, powerful, (laughs) like we, you know, the, the retention and stuff, we knew the value of what we were providing and we definitely took advantage of it. So um, it's been really interesting to ask that question is for even for folks, um, I also worked at a tracing company called Lightstep. Yep. Um, even asking folks, what was it like? What was tracing like at the company that after Lightstep? And that's what I think these are. These observability platforms do need to keep in mind is. You can have a little bit of a blind spot because you, your company will pay for all of the storage. Your company will pay to use all the features. They know, you know, you can turn to a teammate and say, I don't understand what this means. And we tend to attract engineers that have a higher level of knowledge in general, just about monitoring, telemetry, operating these systems, time series metrics. Um, And that is not always the case. You know, folks are not learning instrumentation and monitoring and thinking about the whole software life cycle when they come out of code school or CS programs. Um, I know there's a few good ones these days, but like on the whole, I, I don't see it as a part of the curriculum. Yeah, there's always been, I think, a gap between um, what people learn in school and what they really need, <laughs> you know, to know to to do this stuff for a living. Um, but that's, that's super cool. Um, I think that... Um, I'm not sure if I, I might have met you before you were at New Relic, but I definitely remember you being there 
and then moving to light step. Um, um, we do want to talk about observability. That's uh, kind of your area of specialty. It's something you're excited about. Yeah. And um, yeah. we uh, are going to talk about that specifically in terms of Kubernetes stuff. Um, yes. So you had mentioned a couple things that you wanted to talk about, um, events mm -hmm. and tracing. And I think those are both really good things to tackle. So um, yeah. why don't we uh, maybe get started with Kubernetes events? Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll rewind a little bit to like, when did Kubernetes come into my life? When did oh, I, yeah, when did I, when did, when did we cross paths, Kubernetes and I? And that was at my first um, company after New Relic. I went as an SRE over to Envision, who were really early adopters of Kubernetes, such that um, they were on the Kubernetes train before um, Amazon had released EKS. That was one of the first questions I asked. I'm like, okay, are we hosted Kubernetes? Are we doing it on our own? You know, that alone is a huge difference in observability and what you need to pay attention to. Um, and so I find out, oh, nope, we were early adopters. We're on, we're all on EC2 instances. We're provisioning clusters ourselves. And um, someone's like, go read Kubernetes up and running. And oh, here's Kubernetes the hard way. I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay, I'm coming from my internal tools team or, or technically the last team I was on was a product team, but we had a platform that kind of abstracted away the idea of like, a, I didn't really, as an engineer, know what region my stuff was running in. The nodes, like I didn't think about my infrastructure. I thought about my features. <laughs> and so now I'm, be, I'm, I'm being given this thing called Kubernetes that has so many different components. And now my idea of an application is not just kind of one config file and my code and, you know, compiled in a binary or shipped in a container. But now I'm like, I have a config map. I have a service. I now need to think about this ingress thing. I have a pod. Okay, how do I configure all of this stuff? And, and all of a sudden, what maybe used to be a Docker Compose file or, you know, kind of one big file of config options has turned into these separate objects that I have to think about that all have their own metrics. And I think that is a real challenge for developers to pick up. Not that they're not capable, but we've really increased the complexity of the environment they're deploying into without giving them the training. Um, I don't know that it's okay to just expect um, a, an average engineer to understand pod health metrics. Why? Why should they have to know the intricacies of that? Um, yes, all abstractions are leaky, but I think the complexity of Kubernetes is a lot to ask for developers to take in, in addition to all of their responsibilities. Um, I think it was Joe, your, Joe, your last guest that um, has a blog post of like, Kubernetes is a platform platform, right? Like kind of that idea, we should not be exposing the guts of Kubernetes to our developers. And so that, I guess, is what I want to open with is I empathize very much um, with the software dev side of, of this complexity because I had a real hard shift in that first job to get up to speed, not only on how applications are configured, deployed, and how to monitor their health, but also now I've got to manage the control plane. I've got to manage 
my nodes, I because we didn't have the beautiful hosted Kubernetes, um, we were responsible for a heck of a lot. And the education is really the gap that I continue to see. We're now several years into Kubernetes being an enterprise standard, and I still talk to developers um, all the time at different companies that want more information and they want to do the right things and they want to help. But they open up a dashboard with all of the different Kubernetes metrics and, and they have to learn this whole new language to just understand the code that they've already written and if it's okay or not. So that, I guess I'll say, that, yeah, that is, I prize Kubernetes for the documentation. I prize it for now there are a lot of approachable explanations from like a comic to a zine to, um, you know, interactive sandbox scenarios. I think now is a great time to want to learn Kubernetes and upskill your. Um, but it but it is a challenge. <laughs> so no, I, I totally get it. And I mean, I think I probably even said this in the last episode, but, you know, my general line about these things is that um, I I also have a ton of empathy for the developers, right? Because, you know, they're not hired to be Kubernetes experts, you know, right? Like mm -hmm. that's not their job. And that's not what when their um, quarterly or yearly review, whatever it is, comes up and they're maybe trying to get a promotion or a pay raise or something like that, you know? Um, how much of a Kubernetes expert they are is is not what they're going to get measured on. They're going to get measured on yeah. the code that they wrote and the features they developed mm -hmm. and the impact of those things. Mm-hmm. I know. And we don't eat. I would love to see at least a Kubernetes or a production operations question thrown into software interviews. I do. I do think we there should be some expectation. You're responsible for what you write in production and we should get a sense of, of if you know how to operate things or what your level of experience is operating things. But um, yeah, <laughs> it's it's complex. There's no way around it. The, walking into a tech company today, whether you're a software engineer, a product manager, an SRE, a DevOps engineer, you are walking into a massive system that you've got to somehow cobble together in your head a mental model that is complete enough for you to make decisions and hope that your company is invested in not only monitoring iteratively, checking on your alerts, tuning them, not setting and forgetting them, but also evolving into observability, which is where, where I really see events and traces um, coming into the picture. Um, do you, I'm curious, do you remember your first big incident and what what data was there available to oh you? Oh my gosh. Paige, you you <laughs> understand that I'm very old, don't you? Like my okay. my first big incident <laughs> was probably in like nineteen ninety six or something. So I don't Okay. I don't okay. I don't remember, but I do um I do remember that I mean I wouldn't say it's remembering as much, but I have this experience nowadays that's very funny where I'll interact with tools and um my thought will be like, oh, I wish I had this 10 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever. <laughs> you know, there's there's so many great tools now and there's um, a lot more information you can get. One of the big uh, the big examples of this for me is eBPF, right? And like the oh the God. amount of stuff that you can like learn about a system. And and, you know, I spent time troubleshooting incidents where, you know, we literally there was not a way to get to the the information 
that would have helped mm-hmm. us solve the problem easier, you know, oh. in the way that oh you God. can now, you know, where you can literally see like what syscalls are being made or, you know, yeah. what's happening the on the network, is... all these different things. Yeah. Wild. Okay. Cause, cause I have a pet theory that whatever tooling was there for you and whatever data types were there for you in your early moments of being confused and, and learning how to operate and manage incidents, that's what your right hand is. That's what you go to. And and I, I don't know if it's generational so much as really what was there for you in your personal time of need. And for me, it was luckily these really fabulous traces or even within a single service, um, just sort of, I, I kind of think of APM or application performance monitoring of tracing just inside the bounds of one service. And that is extremely helpful um, to look at those stack traces and stuff. So I kind of grew up with with thinking of enterprise monitoring vendor tooling as this treasure chest of data that I could play with that was helpful, that could tell me things about infrastructure and my applications. Then when we get into Kubernetes, there's a whole lot of things that can go wrong. We tinted at the complexity involved in not only maintaining a cluster, but um, let alone configuring your application. Say everything goes right. You've got every, you know, your pipelines are green for CICD. You've got your monitoring in place. Dashboards look good. And all of a sudden you see that your deployments failed. That is probably, that is where I like to start the conversation versus the heat of the moment reactive incident debugging because they're two totally different modes of investigation. Sure. <laughs> um, and so... For me, I'm always like, describe pod, you know, get events, tell me what's going on. I want to know as quick as possible what and where. Why? I would love to know why. And and a lot of the people that sell you why in a box and sort of the AI ops, I'm like, I don't know if we're there yet. Yeah. I still think the human in the loop brings a lot to the table. Um, it is our years of experience and our knowledge of the system and the people making changes to the system that lead to quick um, troubleshooting or, or more efficient investigations. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that 100%. And, you know, having spent time around some of the folks in the resilience engineering space, like some of my friends from Netflix and some other other mm-hmm. places, they talk a lot about um, the role of the humans in these socio-technical systems and the fact that... Um, it's the people a lot of times that maybe even prevent the incident from happening in the first place, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And so if we think about that case of a deploy gone bad, for some reason, the deploy failed. If you're working in a shop that has uh, an internal tools team, or if we call it platform engineering, sometimes it's called DevOps, Um Unless there's a lot of good developer training and enablement, um, oftentimes if a developer doesn't know where or how to find that information or how to interpret um, node not ready, image pull, you know, back off. Like we can think, yeah, it says it right in the title, image pull error, back off. Um, But does that person, you know, does that developer know about, what do they know about Docker? Do they know about registries? There's a whole lot hiding behind image pool error um, that we we can quickly be like, oh my god, let me go, <laughs> let me go check. I know where to go, and I'm using my system knowledge to figure that out. And so, 
I don't. So that gets at that human in the loop problem. So you could have the available data. You could have the event that tells you the reason that that event fired. Um, but if your observer, your person on the other end looking at that data doesn't understand how to interpret it, it's, it's I don't know, it's not as helpful. It, is your system not observable? You've got to consider the yeah. humans in the loop. No, it's, what a, I found, it's a really good point. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no. Uh, I mean, I was just going to say that um, I feel like um, when I see people troubleshooting or talking about troubleshooting, I don't know that I see people doing get events as much, you know, like I don't <laughs> know if people yeah. are thinking about events or using them as as much as they maybe could be. Yeah. And if they do, they may not explicitly know that they're looking at events when they look at that reason field, you know, uh, failed attached volume, node not ready, rebooted. Um, that is that to me is the the like power the power debugging um versus i could i guess i'll step back and say when i'm talking about observability i think about the data types that are available in a modern system we've got our metrics we've got our logs we've got what events which are a thing happened at this time <laughs> um that's about as generic as i could get um, and then that concept of a trace where you're taking a span, which you could think of as a structured event with some specific field thrown on there to stitch it together into a trace. Um, that's a whole lot of information to take in. So oftentimes I've, I've been on this central SRE or DevOps team that's in charge of the journey from PR to production, your pipelines, and then every environment in between their, you know, staging and prod. Yeah. Um, and, and I get a lot of developers saying, hey, what? My deployment failed. I'm like, okay, why? <laughs> okay, <laughs> give me the reason. And, and I'll go look at the event. And then what was really the most beneficial part is when I'd stop and say, hey, what do you already know about Kubernetes? Or have you, have you looked at, if I'm on this podcast, I'll call it Cuddle. Have, you know, what are your cube cuddle skills? Um, can I pair with you? And then you start to see, oh my God, um, we, I'm talking at this level of abstraction layers and, and problem is down here. And now I need to get your understanding. Um, I need to like to give you a crash course in the last 10 years of computing innovations um, and explain why our company or organization has tried, why we adopted Kubernetes, which I probably wasn't even here for. Um, so I'm going to give you some some of the canned answers. So like. There's. I don't I'd be curious what your take on. On the wall between developers and operators, whether we've really crumbled that. Um, is it a chain link fence now? Is it that the ops field is bigger because we have to care about Kubernetes and, and the developers are hidden from that? W where do you think we are? Uh, well, it's interesting. Um... I think that uh, DevOps started so long ago. I want to say it's been 11 years now or something like that. Yeah, and yeah. and um, I was working in operations at that time very closely with software engineers. I was basically like an SRE before, you know, it, that term yeah. existed outside of Google anyway. And, totally. um, and I feel like um, 
I feel like we still have a lot of the same exact problems. And I feel like, you know, I hear a lot of conversations where it's like, you know, platform engineers talking shit about developers or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the technology has changed. And I think that in certain circles, things are maybe better. You know, I feel like there are people who have learned and are building things in better ways, but but definitely not everybody. And um, <laughs> yeah, we got know, work thinking, to do. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of the Dora report, you know, if you're familiar with that mm -hmm. stuff. Um, it's been a while um, since I've kept up with it. Um, but, you know, there there was this kind of categorization of like, these are like the really high performing teams and what they do, you know, and there were these kind of different levels. And I remember one year it came out, this was probably like even four or five years ago, but there was this really kind of brutal note in there about the fact that like the teams that were doing the worst were actually falling farther behind, you know? Oh, and, and I think yeah. there's, there's an aspect of that. And um, one of the things that um, I think when people talk about platform teams, a lot of times we talk about building platform that's easy for the developers to use, you know, and, and mm -hmm. all that and abstracts things away. And, and that's all great, you know, but, um, but it's interesting because even if things are pretty easy for them to use, they're probably still going to run into things that they don't understand if they're, if they're not mm -hmm. a Kubernetes expert. Yeah. And I feel like that, that it's almost sort of a consultant kind of role, you know, in a way yes. that, that those people who are in those, kind of central DevOps or platform teams, whatever you call it, you know, that that it's exactly mm -hmm. what you were talking about, about, you know, pairing with a with an engineer and and trying to help them learn what they need to or working on documentation or, you know, refining mm -hmm. the tools so they're they're easier to use, whatever it is, you know, but that um Yeah. 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 I've 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 had the most luck when and honestly, it's not scalable, right, to do it one by one, yeah, <laughs> engineer absolutely. by engineer. But what what I've had the most luck with is pairing with someone on their first config PR. And and when I did that, I realized, you know, someone wanted to add, adjust their horizontal pod auto scaling. I'm like, great, great. Uh, let's. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, we're gonna open up your Helm chart at the company I was at. We used Helm charts to generate the Kubernetes manifest and YAML. Yeah. And shoved that inside an Argo CD application that itself was a part of an Argo CD app of apps that got <laughs> deployed. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, and then we run into a Go templating error, right? Classic. And I'm like, no wonder this is confusing. You wanted to change one line. And now you're looking at a Golang error when you're a Node developer and wondering why there's 20 different steps to even get the manifest that you're going to be applying. Oh, my God. And, and it just clicked for me. I'm like, oh, I've normalized a lot of this complexity. And like, whoa, whoa. The best thing we can do for developers is at least give them tracing, at least give them the story of this is what happens when Kubernetes is trying to roll out a new deployment. Here's what happens when your Argo app is refreshed. Um, the trace to me tells you the story and whether or not you intimately understand all of the details and what the kubelet is doing and, and whatever is, is almost orthogonal to, to understanding these are all the things that happen when X event is triggered or, or 
we need to update a config map and then, you know, restart your pod or whatever. Yeah. To get a sequence of events in order and to be able to follow that is so powerful because then you get devs and operators looking at the same data. You know, I, I would so much rather have a dev say, hey, my deployment failed. I took a look at this trace and I don't know what this thing is, but this is what took the longest. And boom, yeah. you know, I've got a great starting point. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> um, that's the ideal troubleshooting workflow. Yeah. I mean, I think that, yeah, tracing has obviously become a lot more important over the years as we've, you know, moved more to distributed systems. Um, uh, I was mm -hmm. looking, there's actually some interesting stuff. They've been adding, like, tracing to Kubernetes itself so that you can, like, <laughs> See what's going it's an on. Alpha. Yeah. Yeah. 122. Everyone needs to get on it. Um, API server tracing is an alpha um, powered by my favorite open source project after Kubernetes. Don't get jealous, Kubernetes. Um, open telemetry. And so, yeah. Do you mind sharing with me your when did tracing come into your consciousness and how has your opinion of it evolved as? You know, it's been around for a few years now. Yeah, I mean, I, I probably heard about tracing um, at first or really started thinking about it more um, in my last SRE role, which would have been like 2015 to 2017 um, in that period mm -hmm. of time. Um, and um, so it was very nascent back then. It was that was like you were writing the tracing tools if you were tracing. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that I was doing a lot of it myself, you know, but um yeah. but one of my uh one of my things I used to do a lot um is I was a very regular uh, attendee of the Monodrama conference here yeah, in Portland. Yeah. I haven't been in a few years. I haven't been since COVID, but um but that was a big thing. And so, you know, every year I'd be sitting around with all of these monitoring nerds, observability nerds, whatever you want to call them. And and I learned a lot about tracing there, you know, people at Twitter and other places who were doing super cool stuff. Um, oh, yeah. And um, and yeah, it makes a ton of sense, right? The the idea that, mm -hmm. you know, you've got data that's flowing through a system. It's getting handed off between services, you know, through API mm -hmm. calls or or whatever. And and um, having some view of what that looks like, a holistic view yeah. is, is super important. Yeah, the the analogy of a distributed trace is a stack trace across your distributed system. I'm yeah. like, I heard about it. I was on the uh, one of the early teams at New Relic that uh, launched at least, I forget which part of it we were responsible for. But that's when I learned about tracing. It was that was in the era of everybody's breaking up the monolith. Microservices are the new hotness. We don't know what we need to do. And tracing really emerged as like, hey, what used to work for uh, you know, a three-tier web app, it does not work for this constellation of microservices yeah. and that are all ping-ponging. They're controlled by different teams, maybe in different time zones. Oh my gosh. Um, now we've got so many languages and we've told if you build it, you run it. So have fun with whatever language you want. We didn't ask the operators. We didn't ask the operators how many languages they were willing to support. Um, <laughs> so I, it was easy for me to open my mind up to the possibilities that tracing could bring. In the years since, I 
I talked, I talk about tracing a lot and I talk about open telemetry and people bring up a few common things like, why is it that every company has like two zealots about tracing? It's like two people who are like, I could not live without it. And then the whole rest of the org, no one's logging in like that for sure. Okay. And I'm like, okay, it's because those people like were part of the early wave. They understood the value. They somehow pushed through your company's inertia to get some sort of instrumentation that was enough to help them. And they're not, they're probably not going to quit. Like, oh my God, an end to fully end to end traced um, infrastructure and app tier. I would, I would die if I was interested in engineering that send that in my recruiting email. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I've left those days behind. So please do not send that email. Um, I have, so, I, I do have people actually hit me up once in a while for like I, SRE or DevOps roles on LinkedIn. And I'm like, you do not want me to sit at a keyboard and try to do this stuff. Yeah. And then the other thing people say is, okay, well, tracing has been around for so long. Otel, yeah, it's, it's, you know, V1 now. So why isn't anyone using it? And I'm like, there are people using it. Yeah, yeah. There are, with any emergent technology or new kind of concepts or strategies or ways of doing something, you've got that peak of early adopters. And that's where we've passed that point with tracing. And now we've gotten to the point where, like, I know Shopify is running Otel, like bleeding edge version. They essentially help us test some Otel Ruby releases because of, um, how up to date they keep their systems. And so, so part of me says, you know, sometimes tracing takes a while to take hold in a company. You have to be, you have to be conversant in it. You have to maybe have an opinion about what tool stack you want to use. You need to have a vision for the future in the long term. It's not just as quick as dropping it into one service and organically letting sure. it take hold in the org. No, it is an effort. You've got to invest. Um, but I, I think we haven't yet seen the year of tracing. And maybe 2023 is the year for tracing. Now that we're up in Kubernetes, now that Otel is sprinkled on the API server, everyone's going to have access to it. Whether or not you run a tracing backend or you're paying for tooling, any one of your devs can spin up a little Jaeger backend and start playing with traces and start to explore it with data they care about. Yeah. Um, so I think I think the future is really bright for Otel. And now that we're in Kubernetes, that now the party's just begun. No, I, I think that's huge. Um, and I think that um, I've been I've been pretty optimistic about open telemetry from the beginning, you know, because. Mm-hmm. There were the two competing projects and it was sort of a yep. mess. And I thought it was so great that people came together, you know, and settled on one standard. And it really seemed like all the vendors were supporting it. You know, it really seemed like people mm-hmm. came on board and were really, you know, honestly committing to to um, to using it, you know, which is obviously the important part. Right. Like you could decide on a yeah. standard, but like if if, you know, the vendors aren't going to implement it, then then um, that's not going to go anywhere. So, yeah, no, yeah. I, I've um, I've been excited about it. There was actually a thing that came up at KubeCon that was really interesting. I saw a, a talk from um, Alex Jones where he talked about there's a new thing called open feature that is sort mm. of like open telemetry for feature flagging. 
Huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it's the same kind of deal. You know, they, they settled on a standard and they've got a bunch of vendors on board and um, yeah. Right. And, and I'm How? excited to see that, that sort of, you know, pattern like repeating itself. I think, I really think that open source is, we're just beginning to reap the benefits of like everybody coming to the table in these standards. I, I've, I've worked for vendors and I watched, I watched open tracing and open census and I'm like, oh no, which is going to win. Yeah. And I was at that monotrauma when Jono was talking about, here's the history and look, we've merged and now we're open telemetry. And I was like, you're kidding me. I, unless you've been deep in the monitoring world and keep track of all the monitoring and observability vendors, you don't know what, what a like tectonic shift that is to say, no more proprietary agents. If you want to be a part of this new world of observability, you need to come to the table and we need to figure this stuff out because I want the world where you instrument once and you're done. I mean, you need to keep going back and adding business attributes, but like, yeah, of course. I don't want to keep plumbing through the same stuff day after day. Um, so, and, and that is the thing about open source that I've realized, this is my first year that I've had the time and space to start coming to SIG meetings for Kubernetes and Otel. Oh, nice. Is, oh my gosh. Open source is powered by people. It is the people. <laughs> it's open source. We're doing it for free. Like, yes, we work at companies, but very few companies have pure 100% please work on this open source project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh my God, we did this all? Like, y'all did this all? Wow. And, and when I hear the complaints or like, oh, XYZ feature is not there, I'm like, this is open source. Like, it's incumbent upon us as the community for you to take, to be involved into, it is a give and take. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm like excited. I'm excited to bring more people into this world. I've, um, one last Kubernetes, uh, event thing to talk about. If yeah. I know we're at, okay. I, I would love if anybody has stumbled across this project called K-SPAN turning Kubernetes events into spans. Oh. This in, yeah, let me drop a link. In lieu of, oh, you know, maybe your company's not running 122 alpha Kubernetes tracing turned on. Maybe you're a developer, doesn't have access to the cluster config. Um, I really saw this exciting project where we're going to take these events from Kubernetes that we've talked about, you know, node not ready, pod scheduled, XYZ, um, and stitch them together into a story of here's what happened with when your deployment rolled out with wow. native Kubernetes events already. What? Why this project has not had updates in two years? Somebody, one year, somebody please tell me because I, I think this is awesome. Um, and I would like to see more of this. Um, well, I will. I will definitely I, link to that in the show notes, and um, please, if if people events, are, uh, events can be spans, spans can be events. You know, let's let's think about the nuances of our telemetry. Um, it's not the cut and dry three pillars that some people talk about. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I wonder if, <laughs> if we could chat yeah. just for a couple minutes about. Um, SRE and maybe why yep. you got out of it because I, I feel like we maybe had 
a somewhat similar experience. Um, I've read some of the things that you've written about, you know, your burnout and your radical mm-hmm. sabbatical where you you took some yeah. time off and and kind of recharged. I wondered if maybe you could tell us that story a little bit. Absolutely. Um, I had been working at multiple startups back to back. Um, when I was at New Relic, it was just after they IPO'd. So we were in that teenage adolescent um, startup phase or we were growing out of it. And then I went to two companies back to back where SRE was really responsible for infrastructure, security, CICD release, um, in addition to on-call incident response processes, um, keeping the lights on, capacity planning, you know, kind of all of the things that it takes, you know, all of the things that it takes to keep um, a business humming along. And during those during those last few years, it's been the pandemic. Um, I I radically had to look at where I was pouring my time and energy and also think about what was sustainable for me. Um, I'm married to someone who's on call and on call for GitHub. So like front page news, <laughs> front page hacker news kind of incidents. Um, and it's a lot. The human sacrifice yeah. that operators today make, even in systems that have high observability, if there's not a big enough group of people, of specialists that also understand Kubernetes, also understand the cloud, um, it, it is a big toll. It is a big, um, it's a big ask that we have of our yeah. SREs. Yeah, absolutely. Um Sometimes too, sometimes it's not realistic. And if I were someone who didn't, I'm a worrier. I'm a natural worrier. <laughs> and, and I thought that was the best trait for an SRE. I'm always looking for issues and prods. I'm, you know, I know my tools. I know I'm going to check on my containers, X, Y, Z. Um, but in fact, that anxiety consumes you. Um, like yeah. you, you do, there, there are always things going wrong in a distributed system. There's always failures to find. And I reached a point where I was burned out in a way that I was, I wasn't even a good teammate. Um, that's one of the things I really prize myself on um, is my ability to help others on my team, always want to be the bridge to understanding. And I was so consumed with on-call burden and just the fatigue of the pandemic and working at a startup pace is, oh my gosh, I don't know how many years I could work at a startup pace. Um, I, I props to everyone who's been in the game for a while. Um, and so I took a step back and said, what am I good at? What do I like to do? What can I do? And like, I don't yet own a home. So part of me in my mind is making this practical financial decision. How much of my technical knowledge can I monetize before, God forbid, the next Kubernetes comes out? Um, I'm not learning it. I'm not. I'm sticking with Kubernetes. I will be the like COBOL cowboys for Kubernetes in 20 years. Um, I'm the buck stops here. Oh my gosh. Um, Yeah. so, So for me, I... And maybe had I had a decade of experience working with the nuts and bolts of of operating systems. And if I 
gosh, if I had a sysadmin job where I really did have to care and configure servers and care about their security versus, oh, we could just restart, oh, kill that node pool, oh, it doesn't matter. Um, I would probably feel a lot more confident in the knowledge that I have today. But I don't know, if if the big one hits and, and we've got to get on ham radio to talk, I'm not going to know how to set up a new internet. And I didn't feel good about that. I'm more of a concrete person. It's wild that I ended, I started with mechanical engineering. I need to see and feel and touch things. I need to have it in my space. So the fact that I talk about containers and clouds being orchestrated by other computers that I can figure from a computer here, it is hilarious that this is where I ended up. And so DevRel was just the natural next step for staying with tech and really I love my job. I get to bring people aha moments with observability. It's not the scary thing. It's data that you do already look at if you are looking at Kubernetes events. And if you're not, check them out, um, please. Uh, it's a cube cuddle away, um, all of this rich, rich data. So yeah, to the SREs that are still on call, my thoughts are always with you, always all of the hug ops um, because I'm out of the game. Yeah, I mean, I reached a point where it was a combination of having been on call for many years. And I also found myself getting a lot of imposter syndrome. And I think that it was because this cloud native space is exploding so fast all the time. You know, I was always like seeing people talking about some cool new tool that I felt like I should know about, but I didn't have time to play with it. You know, certainly not in my work hours. Yeah, yeah, Service yeah. Service mesh. I'm like, what? Why? Why do we need this? <laughs> I had I had a debate with an engineer, and I'm like, I don't think we need this. That's a really big project. Like, here are things we could do with the system we already have. And yeah, that CNCF, CNCF landscape. I show that to when I go give talks to college students. I'm like, look at this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that you landed somewhere. That is working out well for you, and I'm I'm glad that you're enjoying DevRel. Um, it was super great to see you again. It's been so long since we've had yes. a chance to chat, and um, it was great to catch up. Um, I will uh, throw some links in the show notes to um your Twitter, and you're on Mastodon now. I see. Yep. Um, uh, because gosh knows what's gonna happen with Twitter, but it's so sad i feel so i've never worked there but i know what it's like to watch a system you really loved poured your time and attention and goodwill into and to watch it crumble is just oh it's heartbreaking it's brutal i mean one of my friends who worked there i i mentioned earlier you know seeing people talk about the tracing and stuff there it was one of my friends was on that team who built that stuff out and Mm -hmm. and it's like yeah just just brutal stuff but um, you know, hopefully the, find us there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're both there. Um, do you have anything else you want to mention before we get going, Paige? Yeah, I, I think if you are inspired at all to dig more into this world or to discover for yourself um, how to observe Kubernetes clusters, the SIG instrumentation and also OpenTelemetry's various language-specific SIGs, as well as the collector, are always open. They are full of friendly people who would love to have you join us, um, whether or not you just want to 
learn about what what the common, you know, what our top concerns are, what we're working towards, or if you want to become a contributor. Um, I think it's something you should all consider if you're a user of Kubernetes um, and now a user of Otel, whether or not you turn on tracing in 122. Um, <laughs> okay, I think will, about giving back. <laughs> I will um, make sure to link to the docs on the the tracing stuff Perfect. too. Um, I think that's it's super cool. I was really happy to hear about it, and I think that like people being able to see traces, even in terms of what the kubelet's doing and stuff, it's really mm -hmm. really fantastic. Yeah, and I would say this is where I'm. A lot of times I romanticize the past. I'm like, oh, I wish I was a sysadmin at a data center plugging in things and looking at lights. Yeah. Um, but I have heard the open source experience has not always been as pleasant um, as it is to come to Kubernetes or Otel. And so I really want to give props to all of the folks that have worked hard over decades to make open source welcoming, inviting, and a place where I feel comfortable showing up to a meeting with strangers that I've never met. Um, yeah. I, it's getting better. I like it. We've got progress. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about the old days and and it's like, I remember the world before tracing and I would not want to go back, like grabbing no. through logs of different services on different servers and hoping that like, are the times like, are they, are they oh, synced up, you know, like not fun. Well, thank you so much for coming on page. It was really great to chat with you and um, I will, uh, again, link to um, those things that we talked about in the show notes. KubeCuddle was created and hosted by me, Rich Burroughs. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend. It helps a lot. Big thanks to Emily Griffin, who designed the logo. You can find her at daybrighton.com. And thanks to Montplacere for our music. You can find more of his work at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Thanks a lot for listening.